We're going to be diving into eight weeks of the doctrines of our church, the church. The objective is that by the time you take a membership class that you will know uh, what we believe. I think it's important to know what you believe, and uh, I, I hope that at the end of this you can hear the word doctrine and be excited about it, because I know that maybe is not something that could be true right now. We're going to open this series, it's going to be eight weeks, and we're going to open this series with the doctrine of inspiration. That means the Bible. How did it come about? What do we believe about God's Word? And, and i got to tell you, I'm excited about this. And if you know me, I, I, I don't just love the Bible. I, I think there's my love for the Bible because I'm a Christian, because every Christian should love the Bible. Amen. But I think I just get a little bit of nerdiness in it. And I'm not saying like the Lord of the Rings, like it's better than that, but I'm saying I get this nerdiness about it. I just, I love God's Word. And so I think it's important that we dive into it tonight. And, and I want to tell you from the start, I feel the need to tell you that we could spend eight weeks on this. And, and we still wouldn't have covered what the Bible is, what it's about, how to read it. What's the best approach? What are the translations? How do we do exegesis instead of eisegesis? How do we dive into it correctly and, and understand what God is trying to teach us? And so I want to tell you tonight, we're going to dive into the doctrine of inspiration. And the idea is to understand first, what do we believe about the Bible? We believe that the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament as being verbally inspired by God and inerrant and infallible in the original writings, and that they are of supreme authority. Now, I'm going to unpack that for us, but that's, that's what we believe in a nutshell. When you look at the doctrine of our church, that's what it's going to say. We believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as being verbally inspired by God and inerrant and infallible in the original writings, and that they are of supreme authority. But I think first we've got to tackle the issue of why does it even matter? Why does it matter? Church, I want to tell you tonight that since the beginning of time that the enemy has taken a certain tactic, the oldest tactic as far as I can see in the Bible of how the devil works against us is in this, trying to convince us that God's word does not stand up. Think about it. Genesis 3 verse 45, how does the devil try to tempt Eve? He doesn't start by saying, look how good this fruit is. He says, no, did God really say, did God really say that you couldn't eat this? Right from the start, there goes the, the tactic to persuade you away from God. When the enemy wanted to break your covenant with God, he began by saying, did God really say? Church, it matters because what we believe about the Bible separates us from every other charitable organization that exists. Hear me out. If we want to talk about the authority of Scripture and throw it out the window or corrupt it in any way, shape, or form, we cease to be the church, and we may as well call ourselves a country club. There's nothing that makes us the church when we throw out Scripture. And I'm going to challenge you tonight in our doctrine of inspiration as far as this church, as long as I'm the pastor, we will believe that the Bible means what it says. Amen? We're not going to twist it. We're not going to critique it to try to find parts that may be incorrect. We're not going to take sections and take them out of context. We're going to believe that if God said it, he meant it. And you may say, well, but that's no different than any other church, but I, I want to just go ahead and nip that in the bud right now. 
Teaching you to study the Bible and interact with God's Word is important, but only first after you've established what it is that we actually believe about the Bible. Because what we believe about the Bible determines how we interact with it, and it may seem obvious that a Christian, what a Christian believes about the Bible, but I want to tell you tonight that it's not. The Bible is simultaneously the most bought, the most neglected, and the most abused book on this planet. I'm say that again. It is the most bought, the most neglected, and the most abused book or text on this planet. And I want to tell you that that's not just true of the world out there. In the recent history, we've entered an age of enlightenment where we talk about how we think and we begin to critique truth and we begin to talk about, well, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And so things that claim to be the authority of Scripture or given by God with supreme authority begin to grind against culture. And what's begun to happen is it's crept even into the seminaries and into the churches. And we began to talk about things like historical or literary critical approaches to Scripture. And what that means is we begin to take the Bible and ask ourselves, well, maybe it's the Word of God, but that doesn't mean that it's literal. Or maybe it's the Word of God, but this section wasn't meant to be taken as authoritative. Or maybe it's the Word of God, but we didn't translate it correctly. Or maybe it's the Word of God, but we're going to kind of take out this part or that part. Maybe it's the Word of God, but it's more metaphorical. It wasn't actual history when it gave us narratives of history. And all these things have been tossed around. And, and I want to share with you some surveys in the church. That's where we are tonight. And I can teach you another night about evangelism and sharing your faith with the lost. And I think that's so vitally important. But I think first we've got to figure out what does the church believe about the Bible? Listen to these, this survey from Pew Research. These are Christians, proclaimed Christians, that are surveyed. And what they found was that 35%, only 35% of Christians in America read the Bible even weekly. 35%. Around one-third. They found that 80, 83%, only 83% of the church believed that the Bible was the Word of God at all. 83%. That means... 17, I'm doing my math right, 17% of the church, 17% don't even believe the Bible is the Word of God that claim to be Christians. 39%, only 39% believe that the Bible was to be taken literally, that it meant what it said. 39% believe the Bible was to be taken literally, and 18% of the church believe that the Bible was written by men with no inspiration from God that it was the work of man about God, but God had no inspiration in it. 42%, only 42%, believed that the Bible was imperative to their faith. Christians, to which I say not Christians, 42% believed the Bible was imperative to their faith, that they absolutely needed the Bible for their faith. 42%. This is why it matters. And so as we dive into this tonight, church, what I want to challenge you with is the, the step number one to what we believe about the Bible is that we approach the Bible in faith. It requires some faith to even approach the Bible as a Christian. Think of it this way, as a newborn uh, with a, a newborn with a good mother, and when you're, the newborn is born, there's some degree of just, just faith that that mother is going to provide for the newborn. 
There's some degree of just innate uh, built inside of them that when they go to mom, mom is going to nourish and care for them. Now, later they may discover that mom is not good and that, that mom is not going to nourish and provide. But at the beginning, there's an understanding that with faith, I'm just going to step out in faith as a, as a baby. I, there's no like process in the child's mind that goes, I'm going to seek out and, and maybe mom's going to provide for maybe she's not. There's an innate faith that mom is going to nourish and care for the newborn. Now, later they may find out she's not good, but what I want to tell you is that's how we approach the Bible. You enter into the Bible as a Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you enter into God's Word with the understanding that we go in from the start with the faith that it means what it says, that it's true, that it's accurate, and that it's the authority for our life. Now, later you can dive into it and decide for yourself if it holds up, but what I want to tell you is, as a Christian, you enter in from the start. You don't look at the Bible and read it and try to decide if one part is correct or not. You enter in, as a Christian, with faith that it's just correct. And as someone who has spent the last six years studying almost nothing else but this Word, I want to tell you, I've spent six years so far. I grew up in the Bible, but now I've, I've immersed my life in it. I'd stake my life on it, and I've not been able to find a single inconsistency that would sway me from believing this is the Word of God. We enter in with faith. Leonard Ravenhill, the revivalist, said, we have adopted the convenient theory that the Bible is a book to be explained, whereas first and foremost, it is a book to be believed, and after that, to be obeyed. One of these days, Ravenhill says, one of these days, some simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it, and the rest of us will be embarrassed. So what do we believe about the Bible. The first thing is this. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is the inspired Word of God. Now, what does that mean? Because when I played soccer, uh, I, I was pretty good at one point. Now, my, my kids I'm coaching right now will tell you I'm old and out of shape and all that probably. But I used to be pretty good. And, and someone could say that I had an inspired performance tonight. I remember a news article once uh, said Draper had an in inspiring performance tonight in soccer. Or you may go to a concert or theater and they say that was an inspired performance. That is not what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, we're going to look at several times tonight, but it says that the Word of God is, uh, that God's Word is God-breathed, that, that uh, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God-breathed, when we say inspired, what we mean is that God has, has inspired by the Holy Spirit what is written in God's Word, but when we talk about that, we have to figure out and discern what is the mode of inspiration. Now, we should know, we probably have an idea that the Holy Spirit is the mode, the way that the Bible is inspired, but there are actually different interpretations of what the mode of inspiration is. For example, there are those that believe that the Bible is mechanically inspired. What that means is that word for word, God literally is the author of the Bible. He wrote the Bible. Others believe that it is dictated, that God literally spoke to the authors of the word. Uh, so, for example, he spoke to Luke for Luke and Acts and said, Luke, I want you to write word for word what I'm about to give you. Take, take, up, up, your, your, cross, cross, and, and, follow, follow, me, me. Dictated. 
But what I want to offer to you tonight is what we believe is that the Bible is inspired, the mode is verbal and plenary. And what that means is that every word, the words themselves, are inspired by God. And that all of the words, plenary, every word is inspired by God, each one and collectively, but that God allowed human agency to be involved in the writing of Scripture. We know this because when we read Paul's letters, for example, and then we read John's gospel, they're vastly different in the way that they are written. God, in his, in his authority, used human agency to write Scripture. We know this when we look at places both in the Old and New, 2 Samuel 23.2. These are David's last words, King David's last words. He says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. So the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. I'm the one writing these words. It's coming through me. His word was on my tongue. So it's God's words that he wants David to write, but David is writing through himself. He has some agency in what he is writing. Perhaps a, a better example is in Luke chapter 1. Luke's gospel opens up with this. Many have under, undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, Luke writes, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants to the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So we see here that Luke has in his own agency, God didn't force his hand or tell him the exact words, Luke has decided others have tried to write this, now I'm going to give my own account for my witnesses. Luke's gospel obviously is in Scripture, but God allowed Luke to put his own personality into the writing of this word. So it is inspired, but humans still have the ability to put their personality into it. And praise God for that. It's the reason that when we read Paul, if you're like me, sometimes you read and you go, he sounds kind of arrogant. Or you read Paul and you go, you know what, I don't think Paul, I think Paul was totally not interested in women at all. I think he just kind of did his own thing. It's the reason we begin to see personalities in the authors. You all kind of set up a little bit on that one, but uh, we'll, we'll discuss that another time. Personality comes out. God uses the people. However, the words are superintended by God. Second Peter chapter 1 is probably our, 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 one of our two primary texts tonight. Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So Peter says, God has given every word that the prophets share. No interpretation of prophecy, no Scripture has come about by our own interpretation. God has given us what we believe. Verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to lose attention tonight, but I think it's so important that we dive in to the details of what we believe. There's two things we see here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. We're going to jump around a lot tonight. Don't feel like you have to keep up. But in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's an idea going around in Judaism at the time that when the Messiah comes, he's going to get rid of the old law, the old scriptures, and a new law is going to be created, and what's old is going to be done away with. But Jesus says that none of that's going to be taken away. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill the law. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
So Jesus says, God has given this word, both old, he's talking about the Old Testament here, that the Old Testament is not thrown out because Jesus came. It matters, and in fact, he says, heaven and earth will disappear before any word from God's word is taken away. Until everything is accomplished. In the last day, we won't need the word of God anymore. But we'll talk about that. It doesn't mean it's going to be gotten rid of or not true anymore. But we're going to be with God face to face and no longer need to turn to the scriptures to know what God says. Until everything is accomplished. But in 2 Peter, turning back, we see that the New Testament is also confirmed to be the word of God. I know this is a lot. If you're taking notes, this is a lot to keep up with. But I promise you, we're getting somewhere. In 2 Peter, again, he says that no prophecy of Scripture, that means the Old Testament. Peter says the Old Testament was accepted as the Word of God. That was just a, a truth statement that existed. See, in our day, we worry about truth. I, my truth, your truth. But in that day, at least among the Jews, there was no question about what was true. If you were a Jewish person who believed in Yahweh, then you acknowledge that the Old Testament was Scripture. There was no question about it. And so Peter says, listen, he's talking about the transfiguration here. 2 Peter chapter 1, he opens up with talking about the transfiguration where Peter and the uh, two other disciples, they see Jesus manifested in his glory on the mountain, and apparently that's being attacked. And so Peter says, listen, what we came up with, that wasn't just something we cleverly devised. That was given by God. It's true. It's authoritative. Both the Old and the New Testament are inspired by God. You with me so far? Because here's where we get into the messiness of today's world. At some point, some point recently, as many of you can imagine in the world we live in, maybe you're not as cynical as me, but at some point, human beings had the audacity to begin to think that maybe we knew more than God. Can you believe that? And in this process, what we began to do in the modern age is we began to throw around words like inerrancy and infallibility that became necessary. I promise you, these, these words, whether you know what they mean or not, they didn't come about because somebody was trying to be cute or smart. They came about because they became necessary because scholars, scholars began to decide that maybe the Bible wasn't as accurate as we thought. They began to question what it said, and maybe this word doesn't mean this word, and maybe this period of history is not as accurate as the Bible says, and we began to think that science, which also requires faith, could speak over the Bible, ignoring the fact that the Bible usually confirms science when we read it correctly. And so we began to believe that the Bible may have errors in it. The response to that was you had some who took it too far, and inerrant became this ugly word that went around the Christian church where inerrant meant that we weren't, there were no errors and it began to be abused. Remember I said the Bible is the most abused book in history. For example, a great deal of what happened in World War II with Nazi Germany and the Holocaust occurred because the Bible was used incorrectly. We began to decide that since it had no error and it talked about slavery, they took it out of context and decided the Bible was telling us that slavery was okay and things like American slavery took place. Inerrant began to be a term that fundamentals use to say that we can use this however we want because it has no errors, then we can, we can use it and know it's authoritative to meet our own devices. And so what began to happen was seminaries began to look for another word. 
inerrant got a yucky flavor to it, and so they decided we're going to call it infallible. They began to say, well, the Bible is not inerrant, but it is infallible. Here's what's so funny and ironic about these terms. Inerrant means that the Bible is without error. That when you read the Bible, there's no errors in it. We believe that. As a Christian, we believe that. Infallible, the word they began to use after this, infallible means the, word, the Bible is incapable of failing. Do you see the irony there? We decided, well, we don't want to say it's without error because that's been misused. We're going to call it infallible, but infallible means it cannot fail. So without error means there's no errors in it. Infallible means it will not fail for all time. It cannot fail. It is not possible for the Bible to fail. We believe as Christians that the Bible is both inerrant and infallible. John 10.35 tells us that Scripture cannot be set aside. It cannot be thrown away. It will not fail. It cannot be set aside. And then in Luke chapter 16, verse 17, it says, The heaven and earth would disappear before the least stroke of the pen. We read that already. It's inerrant and it's infallible. You still with me? Yeah? Amen? Maybe? A little bit? It's a lot. It's a lot. We're going to make it, though. We're going to make it. I promise, I, I promise you'll love doctrine by the time we're done. It's inerrant and it's infallible. Finally, in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6, the Bible says this, Every word of God is flawless. Every word of God is flawless. It is without error. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then it says this, Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. I want to be clear about what that means. In today's world, I have to say this. How many of you have had that moment where there's a knock on your door, and you thought, oh, great again. And as you opened it, it was someone from Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon Church trying to share literature with you. Yeah? Anybody? I hope you're not like me before Jesus. Now listen, before Jesus, I'm going to tell you something I did that was awful. For those of you online, hear me again. Before Jesus, I knew they didn't like to see folks without clothes. And I, I dislike, I'm not like Ryan, I dislike this process so much, I would be in my boxers, and I would answer the door, and they would hightail it back to their car. That's ugly. And I don't want to be ugly tonight, but I do want to make something very clear. The Bible says nothing is to be added to his word. Nothing is to be added to his word. Which means that in the 20th century, it is not correct or possible to be digging somewhere, where was it, upstate New York, wherever it was, to be digging somewhere and find plates of gold that are to be added to the Holy Scriptures. It also means, when I read it, he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. That means that when you decide you're going to sit down with the Bible, and you don't like this part or that part, and this part doesn't meet your devices, and you begin to change words, the Bible says he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Not only is what's written inerrant and infallible, but the word of God is not to be added to, changed, or used to meet our desires. Amen? It is inerrant and infallible. Finally, church, I, hey, thank you all for bearing with me. You, you're doing so, you're just, I can see you're keeping up. It's good, it's good. And not getting too bored. But let me get to my favorite part. And here's where I get excited. The Bible is the supreme 
and final authority. It is the supreme and final authority. For those of you that came from the Methodist Church, you're going to love this. There's a thing called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Let me use my ugly handwriting to draw it for you. So it's this idea, Scripture, faith, excuse me, Scripture, uh, experience. I know it's ugly. Experience, tradition, and reason. I know it's ugly. Get over it. Here's what Wesley came up with. He says that in our faith journey, we have certain processes that help us understand who God is. And what Wesley came up with was Scripture. Now, hear me. Wesley did not ever say Wesleyan quadrilateral. He didn't say that. In fact, he didn't even put these things in the grouping the way that we later did. I believe it was in the 60s. A theologian said this is what Wesley was saying. But what Wesley taught was that when we're trying to process what God is saying or what God wants for us or how we're to live our life, the process was to be we turn to the Word of God, to Scripture, and then we go through the process of experience, tradition, and reason. That we take Scripture, first and foremost, it is primary and has the, the utmost authority, and then we begin to ask, what are our experiences, what, is our, what we go through on a daily basis, what does that tell us? What are our traditions, what has the church said throughout history, and we seek there. And finally, what is reason, what is logic weigh into this? Now church, I, I, I regret to tell you that what began to happen over time is this quadrilateral where Scripture was supposed to be up here and the other three down here, what began to happen over time was that we decided that all of these were of equal weight. That Scripture, experience, tradition, and reason carried equal weight and were to speak equally into our lives. And what you see happening from this process is the disaster that exists in much of the church today. Because God's word was never meant to be a part of how we process our life. It was meant to be the supreme authority. I turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. What we read in Acts chapter 17 is the apostle Paul is sharing the word about Jesus. He's sharing the gospel, and he goes to a place called Thessalonica. And when he's in this place, he begins to share the word, and what happens is some believe without another question. They say, I like what Paul's saying. I like the way he talks. I'll follow you wherever you go. However, a group of Jewish folks there in that time decided it's heresy what he's preaching, and they ran him out of town. And so Paul leaves Thessalonica, and he goes to a place called Berea. And when he's in Berea, he goes through the process again because Paul was not disturbed by being run out of town. The guy just didn't care. He had no shame. He had no pride. Paul would keep going. He didn't care. Run him out of town where he's got to be dropped in a basket, beat him and whip him. He doesn't care. Throw him in prison. Doesn't matter. Paul's going to keep preaching the gospel. So he goes to Berea, and he gives this whole spiel again about Jesus. And Acts chapter 17, verse 11, says that now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. So Paul says the, the Jews here that he's preaching to, because Paul always started in the synagogue, he says these Jews are more noble. And so we need to ask, what made them more noble? And Paul says this, 
For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, hear me out. I love what I do. I'm passionate about it. I'll never preach from the Word in a way that I intentionally preach it wrong or misinterpret Scripture or try to use it to my own devices. I, I hope I'd never do that. But I'm broken. And so this process starts right here. Scripture, experience, tradition, reason. Anything I say to you, especially if it's not about Jesus, but even when it's about Jesus, if I say something to you, the process that you should go through each and every time, including tonight, is for you to go home and weigh it to Scripture and make sure that it's true. Don't follow me, follow Jesus. The greatest disrespect you will ever show me and the biggest way you will ever hurt my feelings is if you decide to follow me over Jesus. Take every word that I say and ask yourself, is it true? Now, hear what I'm saying. Don't weigh it to your experience. Don't weigh it to what's happened in the past in your old church. Don't weigh it to what is logical to you. Weigh it to the word of God. That's our supreme and final authority. And if what I say go against the, goes against the word of God, hear me, I'm a liar. Period. No questions asked. If what I say ever goes against the word of God, I don't care how much you like me. I don't care how smoothly I said it. I don't care how much you like this church. If what I say doesn't match God's word, throw it out. I'm a liar. I warn you of this now in the third month of, month of this church because if there comes a day where my ego swells and my pride grows up and I decide we want more money or a bigger building or I want you to like me more and I begin to preach something not true to this, I want you to make me the promise right now that if it's not of God's word, you will throw me out. And it's sad that I have to even make that challenge, but I do, because I'm a human being who tries his best to stick to God's word, but at the end of the day, it may, I may fail. You may fail. In fact, what this also means is that those feelings you have, those urges you have, those moments where you're reading God's word and you are reading the Bible and you think, ah, I really don't like what it's saying here. You know, I'm really struggling with that. I, I, I experienced this or I've been thinking about that and it really doesn't match what I'm reading here. Hear me. You're wrong. It's right. Say it twice. You're wrong. It's right. I'll give you an example one of the most misused or, or neglected parts of Scripture. In the book of Matthew, what it says is that when someone in your church errors in any way, it literally gives you a process to address the error. What it says is you're to go to that person one-on-one, -on -one, you're to say, listen, you're not matching what God's Word says you are sinning, you are erring, you have offended me, you have done something you should not have done. I want to come to you one-on-one, -on -one. I want to address it to your face, and I want to work this out, and then it's done. 
And the Bible says that the next step, should that brother or sister not listen, is for you to go with one or two other people and to go back to that person again and say, brother, sister, listen, you've offended me, you've offended God, there's something going on here that I don't feel like is right, we need to address this, and if they ignore you again, then the Bible says you are to take it to the church and address it as a congregation. Not to put them down or to ridicule them or to be hostile toward them. The goal is to bring them back into the fold. I don't know about you, but when I read that, listen, I I love you guys. I don't do it on purpose, but sometimes I know that you're doing something dumb or I just didn't like what you did. And sometimes I catch myself going to my wife or one of my best friends and saying, oh, you know what? This is going on. And it just gets on my nerves. And and I just can't believe they said this or did this. And I can't believe they're even thinking about that. And this is getting so annoying. And, And what I begin to realize is, you know what? If I read Matthew, I'm wrong. The Bible is the supreme and final authority even when you don't like it. And what that means is we can't keep going on about our lives day to day and just ignore it. All of it. We said it's inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It has no errors and it never will fail. If we believe this, then we can't continue to read it and read one part and go, ah, you know, I really like this. You know, well, helping the poor, I love helping the poor. But then when we read about how we're to address issues with others, we just throw it out because we don't care. Every word, inspired, without error, infallible, final authority. Every word. I know that's scary. If we're honest, it's a little bit scary. But it's also so incredibly encouraging. Think about it. What this means, this is what God has gifted us with. What it means is, as a Christian, you don't have to go about life wondering, what do I do? You have a standard. You have a, a, a book of God that he has given you with his words that when you don't know what to do or you don't know what to say or you don't know how to act or you don't know how to approach something, you can go to God's word and you know, you know what? This is my final authority. No matter what anyone else says, my, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my best friend, my spouse, my therapist, no matter what anyone else says, this is my final authority. You have the beauty of having a standard that's without error and cannot fail to turn to for guidance. Do you want to know why coronavirus has been such an issue other than the fact that it kills and it's serious and it's been such a, such a terrible disease to go through and all this, these things? You know the real reason it's harming us so bad? Because there's no precedent on how to handle it. Think about it. I know we want to scream politics or we want to scream they're not taking it seriously enough, but at the end of the day, listen, this is why it's destroying, it's causing so much destruction. It's because there's no precedent for it and we don't know how to handle it. The world is scrambling going, uh, well, well, I think masks work. Well, I think masks don't. Well, I think four masks work. Well, I think that you shouldn't wear them at all. Well, I think this is about freedoms or I think this is about health. We're going around and we have no idea what to do. Because we have no, they have no standard to go, oh, you know what, what did the government do the last time this happened? There is no precedent. What I'm telling you is, no matter what in life, whether it's the coronavirus, when we it, it approached this issue back in whenever it was, January, December, whenever, we got to look at Romans 14, right, and say, listen, this is what Paul says. If you're trying to figure something out, you don't know what to do, go with love. We had a precedent. 
But the world is out there scrambling because they don't have any way to go in and say, what do we do here? You do. And so I'm here to tell you tonight, church, as lovingly as I can, listen, I've worked with teenagers for six years now. And I've told you before, the reason I love them is because they're usually more honest than adults. They won't fake their faith. They don't believe they're going to say, I don't believe that crap. And I've asked them every single year, at least once a year, I've asked the kids I've worked with about the Bible. And I say, I've told you this before, but I say, hey, hey, listen, how much do you read it? And the answers are terrible. They're awful. I read it like once a week. One kid said, I read it twice a week. I said, well, that's a little better. And the kid said, yeah, the two times I'm with you. Some said never. Some said about once a year. I had a kid just last week tell me uh, two years ago. It was the last time I read the Bible. And then I asked, well, for those of you that read it, what's the process look like? And I just open it up, see what it says. I'm like, do you pray? Do you use commentaries? Do you try to figure out what you're reading? Is there a structure to what you're reading? Is there a process? Have you put any thought into this? And almost every time the answer is no. So I'm here to tell you as lovingly as I can, I'm not dumb. I know that the answer for adults is not much different than the answer for the kids. Now there's exceptions. I know there's folks in here, I read it every day, I read it twice a day, whatever. But overall, the statistics show we are neglecting the Word of God. There is nothing I will say to you, there is nothing this church will ever say to you, nothing your prayer partner, nothing that your TV preacher, nothing that a devotional book, nothing is ever going to speak as truly as the Word of God. Nothing is ever going to be as beneficial to you as the Word of God. So why don't we dive into it? I'm going to close with this. As the final authority, it's the final authority for what? What is it sufficient for? What is the use I want to be clear about something we didn't touch on here. Just because it's inerrant and infallible doesn't mean there's not narrative of history in it. So, for example, when the Bible talks about periods in history where polygamy was a thing or where incest was a thing, all these uncomfortable things, the Bible's not, it's not condoning these things. Historical narrative is historical narrative. You're called to use a little bit of common sense there. Another example is Jewish ceremonial law. There's a time in history in Leviticus where it says that when a woman, it was the time of the month that the woman was supposed to come into the temple or not come into the temple. And if she came into the temple, she had to sacrifice two turtle doves. There was a sacrifice that had to make, and people read the Bible, and this is why you have folks that misuse it. I had a buddy at the sheriff's office come to me one time and say, hey, will you tell me the Bible's true? Well, then it says a woman is wrong because of that. I'm like, dude, pay attention. But I want to tell you, if you're going to, you're going to have people ask you about the Bible. You're going to have people that tell you it's not true. You're going to have people that try to go against it. And if you don't know, if you haven't read it for yourself, guess what? You have no answer for them. And in fact, you're more likely to make yourself look like a bumbling fool than to give an answer that matters. If you have not read this word for yourself and dove into it. I'm not telling you you've got to be a Bible scholar by tomorrow. But I am telling you, you should care. The Bible is the supreme authority. It's sufficient for salvation, first and foremost. God has given you enough in this book. He's given you enough to be led to salvation. The Bible's primary purpose is to reveal to you who God is. 
Romans 1 says that when you look out at the world around you, it's enough to know God exists. And in the Bible, you you gain what's called special revelation that opens up to you who God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And from the beginning to the end, it's the redemptive history of God. We've said it before. It's not about you. It's about God, who he is, and what he's doing. It's sufficient for salvation. You see it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He tells Timothy that you've heard this from me. You've heard this from your parents from infancy. You've known the Holy Scriptures. They're able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Sufficient for salvation. But not only that, it says all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Scripture is sufficient for salvation, and scripture is sufficient to edify and grow you into who God wants you to be as a servant of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because of these things, if you're nothing else tonight, hear me. The Bible is worthy of your study. It's worthy of you figuring out. Hear me out. I know there's folks in here. Listen, the the saddest thing to me is there was a time in history where men and women died for this book. They died to have it. They died to have access to a single, single manuscript of a single book in God's Word. They fought and died to have access to the Word of God. And now today, I have, I counted today, five different apps on my phone that give me full and complete access, not only to the Bible, but every translation that is popular to the Bible. I have two that will read the Bible to me out loud. There is no excuse, none whatsoever. You have more access today to knowing God's Word than has ever existed before. It is worthy of your study. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you because as we're developing the sermon this week, Lord, you reminded me that I don't have to be fancy. I don't have to preach a message that reaches emotions. You reminded me that your word is enough. And God, I pray that that's the reminder we all receive tonight. I pray that we would be encouraged to study your word. God, I pray we'd be encouraged to understand that it gives life, that it gives growth, it gives edification. Sometimes it gives admonishment. God, we are given so much in the gift of your word. And God, I just pray tonight that we would dive in to study it, to know it. And God, I thank you that above all else, your word is sufficient to lead us to salvation in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray tonight over the person, Lord, that doesn't know you yet as their Lord and Savior, whether in person or online. And God, I pray that while I know I was created here, I was placed on this earth to preach the gospel, I pray that you would send that person to your word, that they would read about Jesus for themselves, and God, that they would know what you've done for them. They would know your great love for them, and that they would place their faith in you. God, I pray over that person right now. God, that they would know that they're broken in their sins in need of salvation. And Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for their sins. That they would place their faith in that the same Jesus who went to the grave did not remain there, 
but rose from the grave and in his resurrection offered freedom from sin and death forevermore. This is what we believe. We thank you that you've given it to us through your word. God, lead us in our worship tonight. Heavenly Father, I thank you that as we sing these songs, your word is found within them. God, they point to who you are in your word. And God, I pray over each person that's here tonight, Lord, over their needs, that you'd work through them by the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you. Amen. <laughs>